Book Four, Chapter Three of The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. Book Four, Professor and Prophet, eighteen seventy to nineteen hundred. Chapter Three, Oxford Teaching. 1872 to 1875. Recording by Graham Arrowsmith. Early in 1872, after bringing out Minera Pulveris, the essays he had written ten years before for Fraser on economy, after getting those street sweepers to work near the British Museum where he was making studies of animals and Greek sculpture, and after once more addressing the Woolwich cadets, this time on the bird of calm, mythology of Halcyon, Professor Ruskin went to Oxford to give a course of ten lectures on the relation of natural science to art, afterwards published under the title of The Eagle's Nest. He wrote to Professor Norton, I am, as usual, unusually busy. When I get fairly into my lecture work at Oxford, I always find the lecture would come better some other way, just before it is given, and so work from hand to mouth. I am always unhappy and see no good in saying so. But I am settling to my work here, recklessly, to do my best with it, feeling quite sure that it is talking at hazard for what chance good may come. But I attend regularly in the schools as mere drawing-master, and the men begin to come in one by one, about fifteen or twenty already, several worth having as pupils in any way, being of temper to make good growth of. Why was he always unhappy? It was not that Mr. W. B. Scott criticised Ruskin's influence in that march, or that by Easter he had to say farewell to his old home on Denmark Hill and settle for good at Brantwood, nor that he could go abroad again for a long summer in Italy with Mr. and Mrs. Seven and the Hilliards and Mr. Albert Goodwin. They started about the middle of April, and on the journey out he wrote, besides his fours, which always went on, a preface to the Reverend R. St. John Turwitt's Christian Art and Symbolism. He drew the apse at Pisa, half amused and half worried by the little ragamuffin who varied the tedium of watching his work by doing horizontal bar tricks on the railings of the cathedral green. Then to Luca, where, to show his friends something of Italian landscape, he took them for rambles through the olive farms and chestnut woods, among which Miss Hilliard lost her jewelled cross greatly to Ruskin's delight, as a firm believer in Italian peasant virtue, it was found and returned without hint of reward. At Rome they visited old Mr. Seven, and then went homeward by way of Verona, where Ruskin wrote an account of the Cavalli monuments for the Arundel Society, and Venice, where he returned to the study of Carpaccio. At Rome he had been once more to the Sistine, and found that on earlier visits the ceiling and the last judgment had taken his attention too exclusively. Now that he could look away from Michelangelo, he became conscious of the claims of Botticelli's frescoes, which represent, in the Florentine school, somewhat the same kind of interest that he had found in Carpaccio. He became enamoured of Botticelli's Zippora, and resolved to study the master more closely. On reaching home, he had to prepare the eagle's nest for publication. In the preface he gave special importance to Botticelli, and amplified it in lectures on early engraving, 
that autumn in which I remember his quoting with apprehension the passage on the Venus Anadiomene from Pater's Studies in the Renaissance just published. This sudden enthusiasm about an unknown painter amused the Oxford public, and it became a standing joke among the profane to ask who was Ruskin's last great man. It was in answer to that, and an expression of a truer understanding than most Oxford pupils attained, that Baudillon of Worcester wrote on the ethereal Ruskin. That was Carlyle's name for him. To us this star or that seems bright, and oft some headlong's meteor flight holds for a while our raptured sight, but he discerns each noble star, the least is only the most far, whose worlds may be the mightiest are. The critical value of this course, however, to a student of art history, is impaired by his using as illustrations of Botticelli, and of the manner of engraving which he took for standard, certain plates which were erroneously attributed to the artist. It is strange, he wrote in despair to Professor Norton, that I hardly ever get anything stated without some grave mistake, however true in my main discourse. But in this case a fate stronger than he had taken him unawares. The circumstances do not extenuate the error of the professor, but they explain the difficulties under which his work was done. The cloud that rested on his own life was the result of a strange and wholly unexpected tragedy in another's. It was an open secret, his attachment to a lady who had been his pupil and was now generally understood to be his fiancée. She was far younger than he, but at fifty-three he was not an old man, and the friends who fully knew and understood the affair favoured his intentions and joined in the hope and in the auguries for the happiness for which he had been so long waiting. But now that it came to the point, the lady finally decided that it was impossible. He was not at one with her in religious matters. He could speak lightly of her evangelical creed. It seemed he scoffed in fours at her faith. She could not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. To her, the alternative was plain. The choice was terrible, yet, having once seen her path, she turned resolutely away. Meanwhile, in the bitterest despair, he sought refuge, as he had done before, in his work. He accepted the lesson, though he, too, could not recant. Still he tried to correct his apparent levity in the renewed seriousness and more earnest tone of Fors, speaking more plainly and more simply, but without concession. He wrote on the next Christmas Eve to an Aberdeen Bible class teacher, If you care to give your class a word directly from me, say to them that they will find it well, throughout life, never to trouble themselves about what they ought not to do, but about what they ought to do. The condemnation given from the judgment throne, most solemnly described, is all for the undones and not for the duns. People are perpetually afraid of doing wrong, but unless they are doing its reverse energetically, they do it all day long, and the degree does not matter. Make your young hearers resolve to be honest in their work in this life. Heaven will take care of them for the other. That was all he could say. He did not know there was another life. He hoped there was, and yet... If he were not a saint or a Christian, was there any man in the world who was nearer to the kingdom of heaven than this stubborn heretic? His heretical attitude was singular. He was just as far removed from adopting the easy antagonism of science to religion as from siding with religion against science. In a paper, singularly interesting, and in his biography important, on the nature and authority of miracle, read to the Metaphysical Society, February the 11th, 1873, he tried to clear up his position and to state a qualified belief in the supernatural. 
With that year expired the term for which he had been elected to the Slade Professorship, and in January 1873 he was re-elected. In his first three years he had given five courses of lectures designed to introduce an encyclopedic view and reconstruction of all he had to say upon art. Beginning with general principles, he had proceeded to their application in history, by tracing certain phases of Greek sculpture and by contrasting the Greek and the Gothic spirit as shown in the treatment of landscape, from which he went on to the study of early engraving. The application of his principles to theory was made in the course on science and art, the eagle's nest. Now, on his re-election, he proceeded to take up these two sides of his subject, and to illustrate this view of the right way to apply science to art by a course on birds in nature, art and mythology, and next year by a study of alpine forms. The historical side was continued with lectures on Nicola Pisano and early Tuscan sculpture, and in 1874 with an important, though unpublished, course on Florentine art. It is to this cycle of lectures that we must look for that matured Ruskinian theory of art which his earlier works do not reach, and which his writings between 1860 and 1870 do not touch. Though the Oxford lectures are only a fragment of what he ought to have done, they should be sufficient to a careful reader. Though their expression is sometimes obscured by diffuse treatment, they contain the root of the matter, thought out for fifteen years since the close of the more brilliant but less profound period of modern painters. The course on birds was given in the drawing school at the university galleries. The room was not large enough for the numbers that crowded to hear Professor Ruskin, and each of these lectures, like the previous and the following courses, had to be repeated to a second audience. Great pains had been given to their preparation, much greater than the easy utterance and free treatment of his theme led his hearers to believe. For these lectures and their sequel, published as Love's Miney, he collected an enormous number of skins, to compare the plumage and wings of different species, for his work was with the outside aspect and structure of birds, not with their anatomy. He had models made as large as swords of the different quill feathers to experiment on their action and resistance to the air. He got a valuable series of drawings by H. S. Marks, R.A., and made many careful and beautiful studies himself of feathers and of birds at the Zoological Gardens and the British Museum. And after all, he had to conclude his work saying, It has been throughout my trust that if death should write on these, what this man began to build he was not able to finish. God may also write on them, not in anger but in aid, a stronger than he cometh. Two of the lectures on birds were repeated at Eton, before the Boys Literary and Scientific Society and their friends, and between this and 1880 Ruskin often went to address the same audience, with the same interest in young people that had taken him in earlier years to Woolwich. After a long vacation at Brantwood, the first spent there, he went up to give his course on early Tuscan art, Valdarno. The lectures were printed separately and sold at the conclusion, and the first numbers were sent to Carlyle, whose unabated interest in his friend's work was shown in his letter of October the 31st. Purge, purge, and as the Irish say, more power to your elbow. I have yet read this Valdarno only once. Froude snatched it away from me yesterday, and it has then to go to my brother at Dumfries. After that, I shall have it back. During that summer and autumn, Ruskin suffered from nights of sleeplessness or unnaturally vivid dreams, 
and days of unrest and feverish energy, alternating with intense fatigue. The eighteen lectures in less than six weeks, a combination of prophecy and play-acting, as Carlyle had called it in his own case, and the unfortunate discussion with an old-fashioned economist who undertook to demolish Ruskinism without understanding it, added to the causes of which we are already aware, brought him to New Year, 1874, in failing strength, care and hope. He sought quiet at the seaside, but found modern hotel life intolerable. He went back to town and tried the pantomimes for distraction, saw Kate Vaughan in Cinderella, and Violet Cameron in Jack in the Box, over and over again, and found himself, now hopelessly a man of the world, of that woeful outside one I mean. It is now Sunday, half-past eleven in the morning, everybody else is gone to church, and I am left alone with the cat in the world of sin. Thinking himself better, he went to Oxford, and announced a course on Alpine form, but after a week was obliged to retreat and go home to Coniston, still hoping to return and give his lectures. But it was no use. The gloom without deepened the gloom within, and he took the wisest course in trying Italy, alone this time with his old servant Crawley. The greater part of 1874 was spent abroad, first travelling through Savoy and by the Riviera to Assisi, where he wrote to Miss S. Beaver, The sacristan gives me my coffee for lunch in his own little cell, looking out on the olive woods. Then he tells me stories of conversations and miracles, and then perhaps we go into the sacristy and have a reverent little poke-out of relics. Fancy a great carved cupboard in a vaulted chamber full of most precious things, the box which the Holy Virgin's veil used to be kept in, to begin with, and leave to rummage in it all at will. Things that are only shown twice in the year or so, with fumigation, all the congregation on their knees, and the sacristan and I having a great heap of them on the table at once, like a dinner service. I really looked with great respect on St. Francis's old camel-hair dress. Thence he went to visit Colonel and Mrs. Yule at Palermo, deeply interested in Schiller and Charybdis, Etna and the Metopes of Selinus. His interest in Greek art had been shown, not only in a course of lectures, but in active support to archaeological explorations. He said once, I believe heartily in diggings of all sorts. Meeting General L. P. D. Chesnola, and hearing of the wealth of ancient remains in Cyprus, then newly discovered, Mr. Ruskin placed £1,000 at his disposal. General Di Cesnola was able, in April 1875, to announce that in spite of the confiscation of half the treasure trove by the local government, he had shipped a cargo of antiquities, including many vases, terracottas and fragments of sculpture. Whence precisely these relics came is now doubtful. The landscape of Theocritus and the remains of ancient glories roused him to energetic sketching, a sign of returning strength which continued when he reached Rome and enabled him to make a very fine copy of Botticelli's Tipura and other details of the Sistine frescoes. Late in October he reached England, just able to give the promised lectures on alpine forms. I remember his curious attempt to illustrate the Neve masses by pouring flour on a model and a second course on the aesthetic and mathematic schools of Florence, and a lecture on Botticelli at Eton, of which the Literary and Scientific Society's Minute Book contains the following report. On Saturday, December twelfth, 1874, Professor Ruskin lectured before a crowded, influential and excited audience 
which comprised our noble society and a hundred and thirty gentlemen and ladies who eagerly accepted an invitation to hear Professor Ruskin talk to us on Botticelli. It is utterly impossible for the unfortunate secretary of the society to transmit to writing even an abstract of this address, and it is some apology for him when beauty of expression, sweetness of voice, and elegance in imagery defy the utmost efforts of the pen. Just before leaving for Italy, he had been told that the Royal Institute of British Architects intended to present him with their gold medal in acknowledgement of his services to the cause of architecture, and during his journey, official announcement of the award reached him. He dictated from Assisi, June 12, 1874, a letter to Sir Gilbert Scott explaining why he declined the honour intended him. He said, in effect, that if it had been offered at a time when he had been writing on architecture, it would have been welcome. But it was not so now that he felt all his efforts to have been in vain and the profession as a body engaged in work, such as the restoration of ancient buildings, with which he had no sympathy. It had been represented to him that his refusal to accept a royal medal would be a reflection upon the royal donor, to which he replied, Having entirely loyal feelings towards the Queen, I will trust to Her Majesty's true interpretation of my conduct. But if formal justification of it be necessary for the public, would plead that if a peerage or knighthood may without disloyalty be refused, surely much more than minor grace proceeding from the monarch may be without impropriety declined by any of Her Majesty's subjects who wish to serve her without reward under the exigency of peculiar circumstances. It was only the term before that Prince Leopold had been at Oxford, a constant attendant on Ruskin's lectures and a visitor to his drawing school. The gentle prince, with his instinct for philanthropy, was not to be deterred by the utterances of fours from respecting the genius of the professor, and the professor, with his old-world cavalier loyalty, readily returned the esteem and affection of his new pupil. A sincere friendship was formed, lasting until the prince's death. In June 1875, Princess Alice and her husband, with Prince Arthur and Prince Leopold, were at Oxford. Ruskin had just made arrangements completing his gifts to the university galleries and schools. The royal party showed great interest in the professor and his work. The princess, the Grand Duke of Hesse, and Prince Leopold acted as witnesses to the deed of gift, and Prince Arthur and Prince Leopold accepted the trusteeship. With all the Slade professor's generosity, the Ruskin Drawing School, founded in these fine galleries to which he had so largely contributed, in a palatial hall, handsomely furnished and hung with Tintoret and Luini, Burne Jones and Rossetti, and other rare masters, ancient and modern, with the most interesting examples to copy, at the most convenient of desks, we may add. Yet in spite of it all, the drawing school was not a popular institution. When the professor was personally teaching, he got some fifteen or twenty, if not to attend, at any rate, to join. But when the chief attraction could not be counted on, the attendance sank to an average of two or three. The cause was simple. An undergraduate is supposed to spend his morning in lectures, his afternoon in taking exercise, and his evening in college. There is simply no time in his scheme for going to a drawing school. If it were recognised as part of the curriculum, if it counted in any way along with other studies, or contributed to a school akin to that of music, practical art might become teachable at Oxford and Professor Ruskin's gifts and endowments, to say nothing of his hopes and plans, would not be wholly in vain. As he could not make the undergraduates draw, he made them dig. 
he had noticed a very bad bit of road on the Hinksy side, and heard that it was nobody's business to mend it. Meanwhile, the farmer's carts and casual pedestrians were bemired. He sent for his gardener Downs, who had been foreman of the street sweepers, laid in a stock of picks and shovels, took lessons in stone-breaking himself, and called on his friends to spend their recreation times in doing something useful. Many of the disciples met at the weekly open breakfasts at the professor's rooms in Corpus, and he was glad of a talk to them on other things beside drawing and digging. Some were attracted chiefly by the celebrity of the man, or by the curiosity of his humorous discourse, but there were a few who partly grasped one side or other of his mission and character. The most brilliant undergraduate of the time, seen at his breakfast table, but not one of the diggers, was W. H. Mallock afterwards widely known as the author of Is Life Worth Living? He was the only man, Professor Ruskin said, who really understood him, referring to the New Republic. But while Malloch saw the reactionary and pessimistic side of his Oxford teacher, there was a progressist and optimistic side which does not appear in his Mr Herbert. That was discovered by another man whose career, short as it was, proved even more influential. Arnold Toynbee, was one of the professor's warmest admirers and ablest pupils, and in his philanthropic work the teaching of Unto This Last and Fours was illustrated, not exclusively, but truly. No true disciple of mine will ever be a Ruskinian, to quote St. Mark's rest. He will follow, not me, but the instincts of his own soul and the guidance of its creator. Like all energetic men, Ruskin was fond of setting other people to work, one of his plans was to form a little library of standard books, Bibliotheca Pastorum, suitable for the kind of people who, he hoped, would join or work under his St George's company. The first book he chose was The Economist of Xenophon, which he asked two of his young friends to translate. To them and their work he would give his afternoons in the rooms at Corpus, with curious patience in the midst of preoccupying labour and severest trial. For just then, he was lecturing at the London Institution on the Alps, reading a paper to the Metaphysical Society, writing the Academy Notes of 1875 and Prosperina, etc., as well as his regular work at Fours, and the St George's Company was then taking definite form. And all the while, the lady of his love was dying under the most tragic circumstances, and he forbidden to approach her. At the end of May, she died. On the 1st of June, the royal party honoured the Slade professor with their visit, little knowing how valueless to him such honours had become. He went north and met his translators at Brantwood to finish the Xenophon, and to help dig his harbour and cut coppice in his wood. He prepared a preface, but the next term was one of greater pressure, with the twelve lectures on Sir Joshua Reynolds to deliver. He wrote, after Christmas, Now that I have got my head fairly into this Xenophon business, it has expanded into a new light altogether, and I think it would be absurd in me to slur over the life in one paragraph. A hundred things have come into my head as I arrange the dates, and I think I can make a much better thing of it, with a couple of days' work. My head would not work in town, merely turned from side to side, never nodded except sleepily. I send you the proofs just to show you I am at work. I am going to translate all the story of Delphic answer before Anabasis, and his speech after the sleepless night. Delphic answers, for he was then again brought into contact with spiritualism, and sleepless nights, for the excitement of overwork was telling upon him, 
were becoming too frequent in his own experience, and yet the lectures on Reynolds went off with success. The magic of his oratory transmuted the scribbled jottings of his manuscript into a magnificent flow of rolling paragraph and rounded argument that thrilled a captious audience with unwanted emotion and almost persuaded many a hearer to accept the gospel of the ethereal Ruskin. In spite of a sense of antagonism to his surroundings, he did useful work which none other could do in the university. That this was acknowledged was proved by his re-election in early 1876, but his third term of three years was a time of weakened health. Repeated absence from his post and inability to fulfil his duties made it obviously his wisest course at the end of that term to resign the Slade Professorship. End of Book 4 Chapter 3 Recording by Graham Arrowsmith